0: Hello, and happy Saturday, or depending on the day you listen to this, happy that day it is then, or now. Hmm, I'm Mike Pesca, host of The Gist, where I bring you a best of segment from the past and from this past week. I'm going to do that But the segment won't be a just segment. It's going to be Not Even Mad to remind you of the new podcast I'm doing with Jamie Kerchick and Virginia Heffernan. This was from episode two of Not Even Mad, and we debated a big issue in advance of the midterms, crime and the perception thereof. Now, it does get heated. Not Even Mad was always meant to get heated, though we do enjoy each other. We also Argue with each other, maybe even like arguing. Some people said, Ooh, a little too nasty. Do let me know what you think about that. It's meant to be a bit fiery. Our email address is not even mad at peachfishprojects.com. That will be this week's segment. And then you will hear a talk I did with John Pfaff of Fordham University, who's the author of a book called Locked In. The True Causes of Mass Incarceration, and How to Achieve Real Reform. Here now, a segment, not all the segments, you'll have to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or, you know, your own podcast player. You don't need me to hold your hand for that. You'll need to subscribe to get the whole show, and I hope you do. Episode 3 posts, they usually are on Wednesday, but this one's going to be on Thursday to give us a day to react to the midterms. So here now, the last episode, some of the last episode of Not Even Mad, followed by John Bath. Hello and welcome to Not Even Mad, a show where we're at times intemperate, conspicuously quizzical, penetratingly pugnacious, but we're not even mad. Today, as we discuss the Elon Musk Twitter takeover, Fear of Crime, and as we introduce a segment called Cancel Court, we vow to relish the discourse because we are Not Even Mad. Who are we specifically? Jamie Kerchick is a columnist for Tablet Magazine and author of the New York Times bestseller, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. Jamie, I give you the choice. Please name your favorite Halloween candy or saint in honor of All Saints Day.
2: I'm going to have to go with chocolate with the little razor blades in them.
0: (laughs) Virginia Heffernan writes for Wired and her own substack called Magic and Law. Same question. Saint or candy?
3: Uh, All right. It's Saint and it is Saint Monica of all names, the patron saint of adultery. I don't know if she (laughs) supports the adulteress or the poor cheated on wife, but either way, I like her.
0: And I am Mike Pesca, host of The Gist. I go with Ruth, baby and saint. So if they say (laughs) it bleeds, it leads. They do say that, Virginia, lead us off with things sanguinary. Releasing dangerous murderers early, that's crazy, but that's far left John
1: Fetterman. Money. John Fetterman has the courage to do what's right. Dr. Oz doesn't know a thing about crime. He only
0: knows how to help himself.
3: So I don't know what Dr. Oz knows, but my question is, do we know a thing about crime? It seems that all these candidates in the midterms are running on it, running on crime, and polls show that Americans are indeed worried about crime. 80% of people in a Gallup poll say they worry about crime. And again, it's always general. Maybe it includes wire fraud. I don't know. But is that fear justified or is it an artifact of alarmist media? As Bloomberg recently put it, incidents of violent crime remain at historic lows in New York City, but people's views and guns on crime are often more influenced by what they see and hear rather than hard numbers. So even as hard numbers on crime can be sliced and diced like the Bible to make almost any point, let's talk about a few numbers. Robberies in major cities are up almost 12 percent. Aggravated assaults are up slightly. Homicides, by contrast, are down slightly and rapes fell by five percent. So just by the numbers, if Americans were utterly rational and all our fears were justified, fear of rape and murder would be down and fear of being robbed would be up. Now, is this justified, the fear of being robbed? Well, the majority of robberies are committed with handguns, so it's no surprise that places like Texas, Arizona and Tennessee have some of the highest robbery rates rates. Pennsylvania is much further down the list. And of course, rates of violent crime in Oklahoma and many red states are higher than in New York and California. But is the generalized fear of crime? Well, we know what the hot anecdotes, the camera-ready anecdotes are that show up in ads like Oz's and and Fetterman's. Um, An innocent person, usually white, is killed by a stranger who's often Black or Latino. Now, that fear is not justified. Of all murders, only around 18% are committed by a stranger. And even of those, we're talking sometimes about mutual combatants. So if by crime, we mean murders or robbery by strangers in blue states, there is really very little to fear. So unless it's gun violence or mass murders in red states like Texas, cars killing pedestrians in New York, or domestic violence, I just don't think generalized fear of crime is justified. So, Mike, I nervously turn this over to you because you are the king of statistics and numbers, and you will no doubt blow our mind with some number that says all of us are about to be mugged right now.
0: No, no, Virginia, it's it's not some number, it's the numbers. I don't know what Bloomberg is talking about, and I don't know what you're talking about. Last year in New York City, there were, that's what Bloomberg was talking about, there were 488 murders. In 2017 and in 2018, there were under 300 murders in New York. So once you have an extra 200 bodies that didn't need to be lying, bleeding on the ground, you have a problem. It's not just New York. Pre-pandemic, there were 16,000 or so murders murders in the United States. And then it exploded. Over 21,000 people dead. So we're talking about 5,000 bodies. These are statistics only because there's so many, I can't talk about them all individually. But it's an inhumane read on this to think of it as statistics or anything other than societal trends and uh, pandemic explosions of anger and also failure to police, as we once did. But there are so many more dead people and so many more dead people than there have to be. Murder had a massive jump right after the pandemic or right after lockdowns during the pandemic. It was at a 25-year high. It went up by 30%. Sorry, it's a statistic. Think of it as 5,000 extra people. And the fact that in one statistic you cite, which is from... An incomplete source that just monitors cities. But I'll even take it on faith that murder might be down 2% this year. It doesn't matter because it was up 30% two years ago and it was up 4 or 5% a year ago. Murder, which is the most horrific of crimes, is rampant. Sure, not as bad as 1993, not as bad as other times, but bad. So many more bodies than there have to be. The not fear as bad is as justified. before the
3: pandemic, as you just said. All of these what? numbers are always comparing. What do you mean, so, not you're... as
0: bad as before the pandemic? You... There are 5,000 more dead people. Then there have to be, as compared to pre-pandemic levels.
3: Yeah, but it, I just mean that it's jumped during the pandemic. So why weren't we just afraid during in 2020, just as afraid we as we are now? We
2: were, we were. And what we're seeing now, what what we're seeing now is that I think a lot of people in the Democratic Party and the media and among liberals don't want people to remember what they were saying in the summer of 2020, which was defund the police, and that swept our institutions, our uh higher education um most of the mainstream media the squad and many by the way many democratic politicians were supporting this rhetoric um and now we're reaping the whirlwind and they're trying and it's this sort of false amnesia they're trying to get people to forget about all this and so they're doing really the worst thing that a politician can do at least from a political standpoint which is telling the voters that they're imagining things and telling voters that what they claim to care about really isn't a problem well you know what Voters are going to vote and the Democrats are going to get wiped out next week. And I think that this fear of crime, whether you think it's legitimate or exaggerated, that's going to be one of the leading reasons.
3: Well, I'm glad to see rape is down because fear of rape is something that is something that is very present among the people I know. And um, but it doesn't lump in with fear of crime many of these times when homicide alone is broken out. Neither does intimate partner violence, which accounts for tons of assaults. So we're not talking about problems with policing unless we think we need more social workers among the police who are willing to investigate domestic crimes. This idea that strangers are walking around at new heights. And by the way, it is down since the height. Who said strangers?
2: Who said strangers? I mean, the crime and most of the crime, as as you point out, by the way, most of the crime, yes, is between people who know each other. And by the way, it's 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 ethnic minority communities. It's black and brown communities who are disproportionately affected by by crime. Um, and they're not clam- they ne- they were never clamoring for, for 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 defunding the police. It was mostly upper middle All right. class, white Jamie, liberals I know who you were, love this pr- defund the police
3: thing. thing. There were two things that went on in 2020. Some lunatics on one side said defund the police, some lunatics on the other side said roll in tanks on cities like New York, which was labeled an anarchist jurisdiction by Donald Trump and Bill Barr. So the 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 martial law types were in power. And we're enacting, the, Na- the National Guard was called out in 23 cities. And then there were some fringy voices saying defund the police. I can confidently say I never wrote a column saying defund the police. I never published a column saying defund the police. And the same is true of any sane person. So because a smattering of people argued to defund the police, I don't think they need any more voice given to them. I mean, you can trash them all you want, but I I'm, i don't I'm not going to pick on the martial law people right now. That was a crazy summer and it brought out some extremes in both parties but uh, it wasn't you the can't extremes bring me down on with the them. left.
2: I mean, I, it was not it was the leading editorial pages, leading commentators on cable news or plenty of democratic politicians. Look what just happened in San Francisco where they ousted the um district attorney, Chesa Boudin, over crime. Um look at what's happening in Oregon right now where they might elect a Republican governor in Oregon largely due to crime. Um and it's not I mean there's, there's also this issue that right. might not even be that you can't really uh, you can't find statistics for, but there is a general sense that our cities mm-hmm. have become uh, uh, less less ordered. That there's that there's more chaos on our cities. That there's more homelessness. That there are more um, uh, they're they're just more fearful places to live. And I can say that about my neighborhood in a upscale neighborhood of Washington D.C. Mm-hmm. And almost all my friends who live in major American cities report the same thing. It's not necessarily that they've been victimized. By crime, mm-hmm. uh, it's that the, the 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 cities have fallen into into disrepair. Jimmy you said that
0: murder victims are disproportionately black, and normally we say things like that about societal trends which fall uh, more heavily on the African American community. You don't have to go that far to say disproportionately in America today. Most murder victims are black, and that is a trend. A post pandemic development, most in a country where 14% of Americans are Black, most murder victims are Black, and it goes without saying, since most murder victims and murderers come from the same ethnicity, that most murderers or, uh, yes, most killers are also African American. But this is a human rights tragedy, especially for communities that you would think that liberals and progressives care the most about. It is nothing to do with how I feel or the general sense of disorderliness, which, by the way, may be warranted. And I'm going to say is warranted. I'm just going by empiricism. When crime was exceedingly low in New York and when there was a miracle of policing and when New York had a murder rate of 3.0 per 100,000 people when the national rate was five. So you were so much safer in New York City than you were if you were plunked down someplace random in the United States. I said it over and over again. Now, it is true. Surveys still said that people were worried about crime in their community as it was going down. But now it is going up. And once you have proven that if you're a city like Chicago, which is has always been a very violent city, but in 2020, if you had under 500 murders and last year, if you had almost 800 murders, and you have proven that you could run a city with fewer than 500 people being murdered, which is no great accomplishment, but it is compared to what's going on now. You owe it to the citizenry to do that. The same with Philadelphia, which had under 300 murders from 2013 to 2016, and last year at 561 murders. There is so much more violent crime going on now than there was four, five, or six years ago. And the reason that there's alarmism is because the development, empirically speaking, is alarming. And I do think that policing techniques play a big part in why that's happened.
3: I'm just trying to do the good couples therapy thing and say, I hear you, Mike. I hear, <laughs> I hear, I hear your anguish. You're telling me that there is there are more murders than there were pre-pandemic, and that's true. The many more. Many more, more bodies. Um yeah. but um but to say that I think the fear is uh not justified is not to say that those things aren't happening. We'll never obviously get to murder zero. And we but the fear is at an all-time high. And when I have canvassed people about their fears I asked a counterterrorism cop yesterday I asked a, uh, a two uh fairly right-wing lawyers who are members of chabad and I asked a uh, a Christian Republican who is a chip designer and they described that the the chabad guys weren't afraid at all they've lived in Crown Heights for a long time and they both of them said things were so much worse when they were kids. You're always comparing, right? You're always comparing. You're always saying it's safe in this neighborhood, not safe in that neighborhood. If you stay out, don't stay out after, after dark, it's fine, but I would be afraid after dark. So anyway, making the comparison, it was incredibly dangerous then, uh, it was incredibly dangerous when I was a kid and it's fine now, is the general sentiment in New York, w- rightly or wrongly, that the pandemic represented a blip, now we're going in the right direction. Mis- um, it's I, not I, wait, the wait, general wait, sentiment. On, Look at on, the polls. Mm-hmm. Chabad,
0: Chabad mm-hmm. is organized around a 13th-century religious text. They want to remove themselves from modernity. Okay. And by the way, Chabad members are safe. These crimes happen They're, in certain zip right. codes. They on certain. They don't live in the Chabad community, and, and I cite not that to live. say
3: these are religious conservatives who live, who like live cheek by jowl with you know people of all different ethnicities, and they are not experiencing fear right now. Again, this is a perception issue. Jamie, you know, has said that there are other things that cue him into the idea that we're in their societal uh, breakdown um, among them, you know, graffiti, homelessness and all those things signal crime or signal some kind of uneasy breakdown that we call crime to some people, to these guys in what looks like a very dangerous neighborhood, honestly, to me. Don't say they f- they aren't afraid of it. Who knows? Another guy also said he, he he was just traveling here that he had once had a subwoofer stolen out of his car a long time ago. He was still miffed about it. He actually admitted that in those days he had racist ideas of who might have stolen it. And he continued to be angry at black people. He never found out who stole it. Um, now visiting New York, he said he didn't, he wasn't afraid at all. He didn't even, uh, lo- uh, you know, worry about his wallet. Now, why am I bringing well, this up? maybe he didn't go I'm... to
0: Brownsville, which is the neighborhood right next to Crown Heights where these K- yeah, Chabad guys exactly, live, I Chabad assume, guys which live. is the most okay. murderous neighborhood the But see how, how city. you're doing the
3: comparison. So you're like, well, okay, he's Republican. He was scared of crime when he was, you know, heard earlier. He's visiting from rural Virginia. He's my brother-in-law and still he uh, was unafraid in Brooklyn. So, y- you know, you can, you can tear apart anecdotes all, all you want, but I'm just talking about perception. So I asked a friend of mine who is afraid of crime. Do you know what she's afraid of? She's afraid of being pushed off the subway platform because videos of people pushing people off the subway platform have been circulating. And she says she stands, you know, closer to the center of the subway platform, lest someone come and, and hit her that way. And apparently those kind of crimes are up. But, you know, when we're talking justification, you know, I don't know. I don't know what I don't know what numbers justify what. I mean, I wasn't afraid in the 90s when rates were really high. I wasn't afraid during the pandemic when rates skyrocketed, as you say. And I'm not afraid now when they're coming down. I am, however, afraid of lead poisoning. So there are a lot of there are other things and pedestrian deaths. Don't get me started. But, you know, for for some reason, I, I mean, I do think this is an impressionistic question. Are you worried about crime? The Gallup poll, no one specifies what kind of crime it is. And then these all the politicians are taking it in and running with it to, in order to tee up, as we all know, their answer, which across the board, is more policing.
0: I just have to say, I'm flummoxed. I'm a little lost at the melange of anecdotes or statistics. I just tried to look at things like murder, which is the worst of all crimes, and document that it is exploding. And I'll just say it's that it's down if in New
3: York. Can we agree that it's it down, down, down in New York?
0: It is down after Eric Adams was elected by single digits percent. It's up by 30 something percent overall. This is like saying global warming is down because last year average temperatures weren't as bad as two years ago. We're not
3: allowed to talk about the 90s, right? But we are allowed. We can't. So we can't even comment on it going down over a year as opposed to saying that
0: it's gone down. We just the official FBI statistics for the full year of 2021 had it going up by 4%.
3: So, Mike, you live in New York. You live deeper yeah. in, in Bro- into Brooklyn than I do. Are you afraid? Yeah. Well, I don't know if
0: I'm afraid. I will say this. If anecdotes matter, when I moved to my neighborhood in 2019 and my kids were younger, my youngest was 10, mm-hmm. we sent him to the store at 9 o'clock and two nights ago, he wanted some strawberry ice cream and I said, let me come with you. Because there's a shooting mm-hmm. every third night. Now, mm-hmm. that's an anecdote and I don't need the anecdotes. I just know about the bodies. I just know about about the empirical evidence. And the last thing I want to say is if there's any politician who would try to, sometimes, sometimes there are issues where, look, we all know a politician has to say something and a politician can't just level with the people and say, well, you really want inflation to go down? Unemployment's going to have to go up. You can't say that. But if a politician were to say, you know, crime's not that bad, he or she would correctly be excoriated and should lose his job.
3: Yeah, I mean, I just I think this is an interesting one because, I, I, you know, I'm not like when when people on the left talk about things they're afraid of, let's say Asian hate. Right? Yeah. They're like they're just like this is really really dangerous. It the right is like never fails to come around. Maybe not with Asian hate, but with racism, with police violence, and say what it's so much better than it ever was. You're blowing this out of proportion. Right. Here's the most conservative numbers you've ever seen that show you that like you know forget people being shot at, forget people who have a jackknife in their in their pocket being shot dead, but that this many unarmed men and it's so tiny. So why are they afraid? They're just delusional racism's over this is one of those cases where i I just want to get to the point where fear is in in is 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 instantiated in us and then uh exaggerated in the media and why we would be more afraid this year than last year of violent crime i'm not sure it's an election
2: year i think that plays a huge part of it is that we're talking about it uh, because we talk about issues more. People are going to exploit political issues more mm-hmm. in the months and weeks running up to an election. And yeah. this is a real liability for the Democratic Party.
0: And that was Not Even Mad. Please do go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. What did you think? Email us at mad at com. Here now, Fordham Professor John Pfaff. John Pfaff is a professor of law at Fordham University. He is the author of Locked In, The True Causes of Mass Incarceration and How to Achieve Real Reform. And he might not know this, but he's one of my all-time favorite GIST guests. Love the guy. Haven't had him on that much, not because society hasn't had issues, but here he is again. Hello, Professor Faff. Hi, thanks for having me on. It's always, it's always fun being on this. Isn't it? Isn't it for all of us? But- you're off and on talking about, you know, your expertise over incarceration, police brutality. Let me start with this. This question might not go anywhere. It might confound you. But I do think if we try to solve a problem, we have to define what the problem is. So what is the problem with police in America? How would we define what that problem is? I mean, there's no one problem. I think
1: there's probably several. And I think part of it, I think, is an issue of budgeting that I don't think sort sure the average person fully appreciates right which is that in many cities the police take up on the order of one quarter to one-third to sometimes one-half of the city's discretionary spending right mm-hmm. so when people talk about defunding the police these days they're trying to draw attention to the fact that there are really very true big opportunity costs to how we've chosen to invest in policing I usually say, you know, there's always more money for everything, but policing takes up a massive chunk and it really does limit what cities can do other than policing. I mean, another big chunk of it is sort of the systemic cultural aspects of it, right? I mean, we like to talk about sort of this one bad apple theory, but I think the things to keep in mind is that, you know, there is this two awful stories, one from about five or six years ago, one from last year in Buffalo several years ago a black woman officer stopped her colleague from beating up a handcuffed man who was kneeling on the ground. And in exchange for preventing police brutality, she got punched in the face by the other officer, then charged with obstruction of justice and then fired without her pension. Mm -hmm. And in Virginia, a relatively junior police officer who was fresh from Iraq where he'd been an IED specialist, so a man who had nerves of steel, was called sort of a distressed man call. There's a person wandering around, clearly suffering from mental health problems, and he was holding a gun. And this military-trained police officer came to the assumption right away that the gun was probably unloaded, that the man was clearly suffering a mental health episode, and that was probably an attempt at suicide by cop. So he held Mm -hmm. his fire and attempted to sort of talk the situation down. Almost immediately thereafter, the next cop car rolled up. The officers jumped out and immediately shot the man to death for having a gun in his hand, which was, in fact, unloaded. In response, they fired the officer who didn't fire his gun on the grounds that he endangered the other officers by not shooting first and asking questions later. We say it's just a few bad apples, but then we actively fire the good apples, right? And you know, we say, oh, it's just a few bad apples, but then think about like the head of the Patrolmen's association and the sergeant's association unions in New York City. They're incredibly aggressive, tough on crime, do not question our authority, we demand respect types. So is the head of the police union in Minneapolis. They're elected by a majority vote of the people who they represent. Right. So it's not just that, like, you know, Pat Lynch in New York City is an incredibly just aggressive, mean, do not question me person. Right. He has been repeatedly elected by a majority of the beat officers to represent them. Right. And I I think that cultural aspect dominates any sort of bad apple kind of approach.
0: Yes. So let's talk about money for a second. The vast majority of the budget for the police does go for paying police officers salary and pensions, right? That's true
1: of all criminal justice budgets. The same thing with prisons, right? About two-thirds of prison spending is wages. About you know two-thirds, three-fourths more of that of police spending is wages. It
0: really is a jobs program,
1: and that's part of where the political resistance comes from.
0: Right. And by the way, let me acknowledge that if we decided as a culture that the job that police were doing was a great job, I'd be fine with having this kind of position be a path to the middle class and to have nice pensions and all that. If we talk about defunding the police, we're talking about hiring fewer or employing fewer police officers. Does that, do the statistics show that that correlates to less brutality, less incarceration, less murder of innocent people?
1: Yeah, so that's a tricky question. And and I would add the push behind sort of the defund police movement is not just hire fewer police, it's hire fewer police to hire more of other people, right? I think Mm -hmm. one thing the police themselves will be the first to tell you is that we ask them to do, in many ways, too much, right? They are not just in charge of responding to murders and rapes. They are also the frontline call for drug overdoses, the frontline call for domestic violence issues that might not be best solved with a gun and a badge, but perhaps social work and relocation and, and housing right they are the first responders for homelessness they are the first responders for for mental health crises. These are not the jobs that they are trained for and these are this is not a job I think you could train any one person to do well so the idea is you hire fewer cops you hire more social workers and more homeless outreach things and invest more in the public housing and the mental health and the public health side now from the police point of view it's not gonna be easy to shift them from one job to the other, right? The people trained to be police officers are not easily retrained as a social worker. And so there will be transition costs. But the idea is not to say get rid of the money, it's to change who we're paying that payroll for. Generally, more police leads to less crime. That is true. That doesn't mean, however, that more of something else that we've generally chosen not to invest in could have produced that same reduction in crime at a lower social or financial cost. We invest all these resources in policing. One quarter, one third, one half of city budgets go to policing. And it's not clear what we get for that, right? You know, nationwide, the clearance rate for homicide, the percent of homicides that result in an arrest, not even a conviction, just an arrest, is about 60%. And in many cities, it gets lower than that. And in many cities, if the victim is a black man, it gets down to like 30%, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, why do young black men in cities have a higher rate of gun possession and gun ownership and, and, and gun use? Because the cops aren't actually there to do the job. The police have actually provided safety. One of the better books on policing out there, and I don't understand why it hasn't gotten more traction, is this book, Side* by Jill Yovi, who's an LA Times journalist who was embedded with a homicide division in South, what was then called South Central Los Angeles. She draws on sort of this, social, this sort of anthropological research across like, time and the globe, showing that whenever you've got a bunch of young men who don't have a lot of upward mobility, and the state doesn't do a good job with sort of monopolizing violence, they turn to violence themselves to protect themselves, right? And that's kind of what lots of, like, you know, black city urban communities face, right? They, they don't have the employment opportunities that the rest of the country necessarily has. And the police aren't actually doing their job, right? They're making an arrest, and one two-thirds of all murdered black men see no one arrested, right? And then we act shocked and horrified that there's no greater rates of gun possession in those areas. Well, of course, right? Because the police aren't actually doing their job, right? We invested all this money and haven't gotten necessarily what you'd expect to get for it. So why are we going to sink even more and more money into this system that, that really isn't doing its job for the most impacted people when perhaps we should really think boldly about
0: alternate options that might really address the problem better. Are some municipalities a lot better? I am pretty familiar with uh, the NYPD. I think you are too. Their clearance rate reports um, in the in the last quarter was over 100%, which means they arrested, you know, this is maybe for solving a murder that was open from a previous quarter, and meaning they had more arrests than they had murders. And if you look back, the clearance rates usually about 50%. It was 74% the quarter before that and 60 something percent. Then again, per capita, New York City has far fewer guns and there for less of a need to have a gun. And a far bigger police department
1: than most other cities do as well, right? On a per capita basis, we have a huge police department. I definitely add also about a lot of the policing works papers, right? They all all stress that, you know, based on our rough estimates of what a crime costs, you know, a given dollar invested in in policing has like a $1.60 return in reduction in crime. Mm -hmm. The problem with that measure though, is that's kind of using the wrong metric for the cost of policing, they're using the financial costs we spend hundred billion dollars a year on policing what do we get for that hundred billion but we've never really measured the social costs of policing what is the cost of police violence right of police shootings of police beatings what is the social cost of the humiliation people feel when they're walking to school and all of a sudden get thrown up against the wall they get searched you know rates of, of heart attacks and heart disease are higher in the black community in part Evidence suggests, because literally being a black man in America is a risk condition, right? That the fear and stress a black man feels every day, and a black woman, but disproportionately even amongst men, that they feel every day walking out the door, is this going to be the day I have that bad encounter? Or every time their child walks out the door, is this going to be the day that my son gets grabbed by the cops and something terrible happens? that persistent, unrelenting, unmitigated stress actually shortens lifespans. You know, you can't just look at 100 billion we spend, especially because most of that is wages, which is this weird Keynesian jobs program kind of thing, right, Mm -hmm. it's it's actually this human cost that we've never once even bothered to estimate, which I think says quite a lot about where our priorities lie, that we're perfectly happy to invest 100 billion dollars a year in policing, and never really bothered to measure what the human cost of that investment has been. But there's a study in which these off-duty cops had left the party, and they had a bad interaction with a a local African-American man, and they beat him into a coma. And over the next year, the number of 911 calls to the police center dropped by about 100,000. And it wasn't because crime went down, it's because the locals were literally terrified to call the police because they were afraid it would be their turn next. And so what's the psychological harm from that? What kind of crimes took place that might not have had people actually trusted the police and been willing to call them? These are staggeringly large costs that we've never really bothered to try to aggregate up in any real serious way.
0: So other than not mismanaging a hurricane or blizzard, you know, you have to keep crime low is so ingrained in the job description, the perceived job description of a politician. And they're just fearful. They're fearful of going against the police. The police have ways of slowing down or the blue flu, or they honestly believe that there is some justification in these really aggressive tactics that it does bring down crime. Right,
1: I think that last bit's key, but implicit in that is that therefore they believe and that the way you keep crime down is just to the police and that last jump isn't necessarily true. And so there's something else interesting with the politics there that they feel compelled that the only way you can show you care really about crime is to invest in the guns and the badges, not the social workers, not the psychologists and psychiatrists, not the mental health side, not the public health side, not housing, not food, not shelter. It's just guns and shields. And they clearly believe that even when the murder clearance rate is 30%, right? And so it's obviously that your police department is not, in fact, what's keeping your murder rate down if they're only clearing one out of every three homicides at at best. But yet there is a sense as long as you can show you invest in the guns, you're going to be politically yeah. safe. That's not just on the mayors. That's also on the voters, the safer, more gentrified, wealthier white parts of the city who aren't going to be the beneficiaries of the social work and want response now. And the guys with the guns see what like they're responding now. Right. And it's very much, I think, white liberal urban voters need to think about why we got here because they are the ones who
0: got us here and they need to uh, confront that well i would I would think that the lever of using uh, sociology or housing is just a lot harder than the immediate lever of the police i it's a it's a society wide fix. It's maybe a generational fix in some instances, whereas just having the police go in and arrest people who are about to do wrong or have or are perceived to, about to do wrong it's a lot easier. I mean it takes up a huge percent of the budget but not as much as you know, providing New York City without adequate housing would take. But we provided provided 50,000 New Yorkers with housing
1: within 15 years, right? We just built the housing in Clinton and Utica and elsewhere upstate to house the tens of thousands of people we arrested, right? Where there's a will to build housing, we can build it. We just chose to build the housing with cages rather than the housing with, with a front door. This is where the boring stuff starts to matter. Prisons are funded by the state, and they make up about 5% of the state budget, right? Housing and policing make up a much bigger chunk of the city budget, right? So for the cities to expand their housing, they do have to find that money, and that means it's gotta come from somewhere, it's probably gonna have to come from the police. The tedious budgetary politics are critical here. Americans showed between 1980 and 2000 that we can build a massive amount of publicly funded residential space In an incredibly rapid period of time and staff it and man it and feed it and run it we just chose to do the penal side of it not the social side of it so i i don't doubt our ability i just doubt where we choose to focus that ability how many preventable deaths would be put up within park slope on the grounds that well at least it's not as bad as it used to be that our tolerance for things being better but not great is not the metric we use everywhere. And in some places we demand that things just be great. And for poor, more predominantly minority, heavily police communities, we seem to be insisting that they be okay with things just getting better, even though things aren't actually good. And so I think maybe things are getting better. That's probably true. But at such a slow rate and with still such a high human and social cost that it does seem to demand
0: something better, much more systemic and, and and daring to come up with. John Pfaff is a law professor at Fordham University. His book, Locked In, talks about why the United States has the highest rates of incarceration in the world. Uh, maybe you saw it mentioned on the John Oliver show, but I don't get HBO, but I do enjoy talking to John. Thanks so much, John. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us on the Saturday show. The Gist was produced by Cory Wara, assistant producer. The Gist and Not Even Mad are produced by Joel Patterson. I will talk to you Monday.